holy shit moments. This is the term that well-known computer scientist Stuart Russell and AI luminary said many re AI researchers have recently experienced these moments, witnessing AI doing something they weren't expecting to see for many years. And we can only expect that to continue. In this session, we tried to put on the crystal ball uh, and brought in experts from agriculture, health, education, and elsewhere to talk about this subject. Gil Moran, CEO of Sprout New Zealand Agritech, Priya L. Donti, incoming assistant professor at MIT and co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI, Igor Costa, senior architect at GitHub, Kimball Thurston, CTO of Weta FX, Dr. Shai Mandler, spine surgeon at Wellington Regional Hospital, and Asa Cox, founder and CEO of Arcanum AI, all chaired by the one and only Professor Dame Juliet Gerard, Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor. This all happened at Diplosphere's 2023 conference on AI on August 29th in Wellington. I hope you all energized. Holy shit moments, a term coined by AI expert Stuart Russell, are moments like DeepMind's AlphaGo stunning the world by beating Go legend Lee Sedol. Experts thought machines would dethrone humans in Go, but not for another decade. What are the leading developments? What new future breakthroughs could we expect? And where is it all heading? And who better to chair this session than Professor Dame Juliet Gerard, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, whom we are incredibly fortunate to have with us today. Professor Dame Juliet Gerard is an Oxford University educated who moved to Aotearoa in 1993. Uh, since Juliet's appointment in 2018 as the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, she has worked from a base of four founding principles, rigor, inclusivity, transparency, and accessibility. Dame, Dame Juliet has supported the science and science advisor community to provide advice to the prime minister, ministers, and the public on a wide range of topics, um, including advice on the Christchurch mosque shootings, re the response to Fakari White Island eruption, the cannabis referendum, and the COVID-19 pandemic, just to name a few. Please join ha your hands and welcome Dame Juliet. Tena koto, tena koto, tena tata katoa. I am really genuinely delighted to be here today. I, I often say that when I get asked to chair things, but this topic is something that I'm really personally excited about. Um, first of all, from my discipline home base, which is a protein biochemist, um, the protein folding problem was one of the first to yield to the power of artificial intelligence. And watching that realization ripple through an academic community, many of whom had spent their whole life trying to work out how you fold a protein and can now press a button and get the answer. And just seeing um, the pessimism and also the optimism on, oh, we've done that, what can we do next? Uh, erupt in that community was a really good test ground for um, this topic in general. So I was really excited when I sat down with Prime Minister Hipkins 
to refresh my work program when he took over earlier in the year, and artificial intelligence was top of his mind. In particular, as was mentioned earlier, um, to look at opportunities in healthcare. And he was really clear that the way he wanted that done was to be mindful of the risks, of course, but to have a real opportunities focus. So um, I won't give a shout out to all my expert panel. Some of them are in the room, but it's been an absolute pleasure to work with a mix of healthcare professionals, philosophers, computer scientists, AI experts, the AI forum, just to really get that melting pot of ideas and really see what the enablers are and what the barriers might be to those enablers. So I'm excited, but maybe not quite as excited as whoever wrote the rubric. And um, I think some of my panels might have conniptions at the prediction in the first line there. But I've certainly, as I've read more and more about what AI can do and played with open AI myself, had plenty of holy shit moments. Um, a couple of bullshit moments, I must say, too. And we should remember those. Um, Whatever you think about the rubric and the definitions that we're using today, um, they do emphasize two things that I think everyone agrees on. One is the uncertainty of the time frame for realizing some of these really big leaps as we get artificial intelligence amongst us that beats us at some of the things we thought as humans we were quite good at. And the other is the sheer scale and the scope of the opportunity that that presents. So you don't want to hear from me, you would like to hear from some actual experts and it's my pleasure to introduce them. We have an exciting range of speakers from all different fields and I'm really happy one of them is healthcare. Um, I'm just going to bob up here to keep everyone honest on the timing and not read out the whole bio because I'm sure you would much rather hear from um, the speakers themselves. So. Without further ado, our first speaker is Gil Meron, who is the CEO of Sprout New Zealand Agritech and Foodtech. Please welcome Gil. Kia ora. Um, so, uh, oh, there. Oh, man. Something new there is. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Kia ora. Kogil Maron I'm the CEO of Sprout. And, um, and uh, my, my work is in ag and uh, food tech. And actually, AI has been, has been around in the space for quite some time. It's been an enabler across many of the verticals and really on the entire value chain. Um, and uh, many machine learning and deep learning applications been used in the last 10 years. Perhaps the, the first was uh, microclimate prediction. And with that, we started to predict, uh, you know, early detection of disease in crops and yield prediction and supply chain optimization. And that was the, that was the start. Um, and I have to say that it was, it was mind-blowing to see that, but adoption took some time. And... Um, what we are seeing now with, uh, with the generative AI and natural language AI is bursts of these applications. So recently, Sprout invested in a company called Amer Farming, and Amer is there to, uh, to optimize pasture-based farming. So the farmers in the room would all be familiar with these wedges and how do you 
decide which you know to where to put your your uh, your animals. But what Aimer can do is uh, become a digital assistant for the farmer and actually turn an average farmer who does not have um, high you know highly knowledgeable labor into top decile farmers. So they can um, use the the mobile device as an enabler to um, improving yield uh, or reduced GHG emissions and, and and deploy all these amazing technologies through the palm of their hands. Um, so that's uh, that's one example. But the next level of applications are around using enormous amount of data that we have in our space and uh, to develop new tools. So the new tools and new capabilities. So the the immediate suspects would be um, to speed up um, the development of new agrochemicals um, and also genetic breeding. We're great in this country. We have, uh, we're breeding animals and we're great at breeding plants. And imagine what we can do if we could speed that process up and, um, and maybe we can manipulate that. Um, that can really push the, the sector and push food security further. Another, uh, and another use of this huge data is development of biosensors. And there, there, is a, there is a company, not a, not a sprout company, there is a company that uses the plant as a sensor. So mo manipulating the plant for the plant itself to tell the farmer, I have heat stress or I have a disease. And that can only be done through scouting all the, you know, all the genetic data and, and manipulating it to uh, to create these uh, these innovations and and then the the, the last um, the, the last of these I guess the, the 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 biggest holy shit moment I had is uh, when we backed a company just a couple of years ago a company called Sentient Bio and Sentient Bio is um, an AI enabled uh, technology that creates a, synth a synthetic nose, a, a, the equivalent of a nose of an insect, and puts it on a chip. So we can actually smell 1,000 times better than, than a dog. And a dog is the gold standard, smells 1,000 times better than a human. And using that, and using AI, using the data we capture, we can um, replicate the insect olfactory uh, system and we can smell anything from residue of chemicals on our food or on the produce that we ship um, to actually applications beyond MySpace, beyond farming, so we can sense disease. Uh, the Gates Foundation is financing Sentient to detect, um, to detect tuberculosis, but there can be applications in homeland security, in, in policing, so just incredible uh, technology that was developed for many years um, and is being enabled by AI. Uh, and the last one that is that we see is coming, and hopefully I'm within time. There's no counter here. Is the around autonomous vehicles? So autonomous vehicles are kind of here, but not really being uh, deployed, and uh, because of a lot of uh, a lot of reasons. But in the, in the farm where the environment, one would say, is a bit more secure, you can actually deploy them better and faster. 
and that can reduce the dependency on human labor. And I've recently seen the first uh, electric semi-autonomous tractor um, deployed in, in the South Island by NZ0, um, but we're also seeing technologies of swarm of drones that can work together on a, on a joint task, for example, on pest control. And for me, AI is an amazing tool. The global food system has been optimized for many, many years for mainly one thing, cost. And we have seen that, um, uh, we've seen the fragility of that during COVID where, um, where supply chains were broken and then um, we, we all realized how fragile the food system is. And hopefully we can use AI to, as a, as a, we have a gift, a new set of tools to optimize the food system. And this time to optimize it, not just for cost, but for food security, for health, and for everything that we need our food system to give us. And that's, uh, and that's for me. Thanks. So the topic of that thing. Kia ora, thanks, Gail. Um, our next speaker should magically appear on the screen and is joining us from MIT. So Priya Donti is an incoming assistant professor at MIT and co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI. Welcome, Priya. You're on the screen. Okay, try now. Um, have a now? Can you hear me? Fantastic. All right, well, hello, everybody. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for having me here today. So um, as mentioned, I'm Priya Donti. I am um, the co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI, which is a nonprofit that brings together people working on AI and climate change topics and tries to provide education, networking resources, funding in order to enable that kind of work. Um, and I also am an incoming assistant professor at MIT, where my research focuses on um, improving algorithms for power grid optimization in order to foster the integration of renewables. Um, so I want to use my few minutes today to talk about the ways in which AI can interact with our ability to act on climate as a society. So first of all, AI represents you know, huge opportunities to accelerate our ability to both reduce greenhouse gas emissions and adapt to the effects of a changing uh, planet when it is applied responsibly and in partnership with relevant stakeholders. And there are a couple of themes that have occurred um, over the last several years. So the first is that AI can pr improve predictions by analyzing past data in order to provide foresight. So, for example, the UK's National Grid ESO, alongside the nonprofit Open Climate Fix, cut the error of their electricity demand forecasts in half by using deep learning to figure out from historical data and weather data what the electricity demand will look like. And this is critical to balancing power grids with large amounts of renewable energy. Another example here is the Kenya-based company Selina Wamuchi, which has developed an AI-based tool to provide early warnings on locust outbreaks, which are worsened by climate change, by analyzing agricultural weather and satellite data. In addition to kind of improving predictions, AI can also distill large unstructured data sources into actionable information. So for instance, the map project, MAAP, they're um, using satellite imagery to give a real-time picture of deforestation in the Amazon in order to then enable interventions to stop it. And similarly, the UN Satellite Center is using AI to create high-frequency flood reports 
to improve disaster response in Asia and Africa by automatically analyzing satellite imagery and giving daily updates on flooding extent. A third theme is that AI, in addition to providing information to decision makers, it can also itself help to optimize complex real-world systems in order to improve their efficiency. So, for instance, Arab Hong Kong, they're using AI to reduce the energy use of buildings by something like 10 to 30 percent by analyzing real-time building data and by doing that, determining more efficient strategies for controlling heating and cooling systems. And then the last theme is that um, AI, in addition to helping us operate today's systems, can accelerate the process of scientific discovery. So Gil already mentioned, for example, the potential of AI to help with um, agrochemicals. Um, that other example is that the um, in the battery space, um, the U.S. startup AIonics, they've helped battery manufacturers cut down design times by a factor of 10. And what they're doing is they're basically analyzing the outcomes of past experiments to suggest which experiments battery developers should try next in order to cut down the number of experiments that need to be tried. So across all of these, right, you might say that's that's great, right? There are tons of places where AI can help us, you know, address climate action and that that's a boon for the climate. But with that, there are lots of caveats, right? AI is not a silver bullet. Even in situations where it's useful, it's only one piece of the puzzle. So if I create an electricity demand forecast for you, somebody has to act on that, right? AI is not solving the problem end to end. And it's also the case that AI is not going to make certain hard policy decisions and value judgments for us. We can't just throw a bunch of data into an algorithm and expect that some magical policy decision comes out on the other side. Obviously, we, we need to kind of make various kinds of value judgments together in order to enable that. Um, in addition, there are real challenges where the kind of development of AI technologies is concentrated today among a select set of countries and entities. So, for example, very large tech companies with large amounts of computation in developed countries. And while, you know, many entities around the world are using AI, there is an extent to which some of these entities are increasingly driving the agenda in terms of how AI gets used. Um, and how solutions are vended. And this is something we have to be really cognizant of if the goal is to democratize the use of AI for innovations in climate and healthcare and agriculture and so forth. It's very important that everybody across society is able to, to participate in that. And we need very large scale, you know, education programs and literacy programs in order to enable that. Um, and last, and, and I'll sort of finish the doom and get back to the optimism a bit. But um, last but not least is that as I talk about this relationship between AI and climate, you know, I've talked about ways in which AI can be used that are beneficial to climate action. But AI is also used in many ways that are very bad for climate action. It's used to accelerate oil and gas exploration and extraction. It's a key technology in targeted advertising, which invariably increases how much we consume in ways that, you know, increase our footprint without necessarily making us happier. Um, it's a major driver of technologies like autonomous vehicles, which may end up entrenching the role of private and fossil fuel transportation in our transportation sector. And AI itself has its own, you know, computational um, and energy footprint through its, um, you know, compute, its hardware, um, the water used to cool data centers and so forth. And so as we kind of, you know, I think take forward this optimism about, I think there are lots of ways that AI can really help us to address climate change related problems. We also need to make sure we're being holistic in how we as a society shape the use of AI 
to make sure that we are both fostering these use cases of AI for good, but also shaping the business as, us business as usual of AI to be aligned with our climate change and other social good related goals. So thanks so much uh, again for having me here and I'm excited to hear from the other panelists. Thank you, Priya. Um, next up is Igor Costa, who's a senior architect at GitHub. Um, there's an MIT link here because that's where he trained in machine learning. And he's been launching machine learning products since 2018. Welcome, Igor. Thank you. Oh, yeah. uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, so my name is Igor. I part of the team that builds uh, Copilot, which is a global product that's being used for more than daily. Uh, probably, I think the latest data from my team is 10 million people use on a daily basis and more than 20,000 organizations across the globe. So with our own estimations of why we created this, it's not because we wanted to create this of, for the glory or for the ego. It's to give humanity an aspect of prosperity and probably, I'd say, productivity. Right, productivity levels grow when you have AI as a tool that assists you and enhance you. Um, so when we developed Copilot, we just released three months before ChatGPT, and then the idea was to bring the developer experience to the to a better place. Right, it was very early on 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 the lockdown. Everyone was afraid. Everyone was afraid of losing jobs or how how can be productive if you're not in an office environment. So that's why we came up with this and has been very productive. So during our studies, and we're still studying because this is just one year old or one and a half year old, um, the estimations that we are bringing to the community, global community, is that probably 45% of our suggestions of the code, it's gonna be accepted. And with a multiplier and putting a dollar value on that, we're estimating that we can bring for the next 10 years or seven years, 20, by 2030, $1.5 trillion to the global economy by just developers. And that's an estimate that we are, I would say, with a 30% um, not, not, not super uh, optimistic about it, but we, we can be you know, extrapolating some of this data. But I, I, we are guaranteed that probably will be $1.5 trillion added to the global market in the developer experience just by these two. Um, and why, why we are estimating these numbers? Everyone needs a developer, even to build a building like this, even to build a software that you use. I'm, I, can, I can see from the tables, the last time that I attended a conference, um, everyone was disputing a space on their table, on, on their desk, because they need to put a laptop on. Now everyone is using like a iPhone or a mobile device, and it's all part of your daily life, right? The way that I picture this is I compare society and civilizations using the Kardashian, uh, not, the, not the Kardashians ones, <laughs> the Kardashian scale, which measures how society grows and evolves into civilizations type one, two, and three. We are probably 200 or 300 years away from that stage where we know how to consume electricity well and consume information. And the idea that we are putting here, the co-pilot, it's just a little grain of salt in this whole spectrum of evolving our society to use AI in a responsible manner. So GitHub is part of Microsoft, and we are building a state-of-the-art products across our suite, you know, Microsoft 365 Office. If you have that, 
in your organization, you're already using Copilot behind. Um, and it's a really well organized and probably, let's say, apply with a lot of ethics and responsible and safe. Um, so we, have, we, we take a good care of that to make sure that bad players don't take advantage of those services and products. And if I have to put a downgrade a little bit of my spectrum of you know, how I, I see society, probably New Zealand is well best placed and we are really good at exporting talent. I would love our, you know, probably our society here or our diplomats to think about how to retain the talent that you have in your place, that you have in your society, right? When you have coming from a country where you struggle to feed your kids or you struggle to feed yourself or pay your rent, probably it's an aspect that that will be the focus, right, of your entire government body or your, your agenda. But when you are coming to a society like New Zealand is, where we come with a, you know, probably a mindset of global leaders, um, and we lead in our own way, you know, using the New Zealand way, that's what I call with my wife, um, we are well best positioned to retain those talents, right? So Microsoft, the head of ethics uh, in AI, she's from Auckland. Uh, Google DeepMind, one of the co-founders, is from Waikato. So we have a lot of people, really talented people, that are leading the way and paving the way across the globe with AI and applying in a responsible manner. So we'll see a lot of these benefits coming for the next five or six years, and it's an exponential. So the way that I would say, someone asked me in the uh, outside, how do I teach my kids to program? And I said, well, what was the last time that you trained your dog? You know, it's, it's like tra you're going to be talking to a computer like you're training a dog. Um, and thank you, uh, one minute, yeah. Um, and then the way that you're gonna be training a computer or programming to a computer is the same way that you're training a dog. So you're gonna be training your own large language models to create whatever you want, right? And that's me, thank you. Thanks, Igor. And next up, we have the CTO from Weta, Kimball Thurston. Welcome. So there's probably actually a third MIT connection because I actually studied at MIT as well. Um, so we're not trying to take over the whole world. Uh, right, so um, yeah, since we've been given permission to use the, the, the holy shit rubric, um, I'll use a slightly different one. You'll see images a little bit later of all the cool shit that we've done. Um, and so instead of going through that a little bit, I wanted to talk about data provenance, um, which is something that is consuming our thought process a lot these days. And what do I mean by that? Um, we have, I would say, three areas. And, and, and this may, the first one is licensing. And this may actually become privacy for other people. But I think the, the corollaries um, hold true, um, where you're worried about who has the right to use what data. Um, and then who owns the data that's produced um, and whether the data is real or not. And so um, in terms of licensing, uh, you know, one of the, there's a couple different flavors of ML, of course, um, uh, but the, the, the one we use pretty much every day now is sort of this trained response, the training the dog thing that, that was just being talked about, right? And you have inputs, you have a desired state that you want to reproduce, um, and then you have some model that gets published um, that, that can then be used by, by artists, right? And so 
what is the data that you're using as an input? Who owns that? Um, and, and, you know, we can't uh, afford to share, accidentally have an avatar from Avatar appear in a Warner Brothers movie, right? That, that would be not a good state to end up in, right? So we have to be concerned about this, right? And so we have different ownership that we, we're, we're concerned with. One is our customer's data, the, the show, the shot, the, the scene, um, what, and data that we've generated internally, um, and, and I'll talk about that um, a little bit later. Um, and, and finally, like workflow data, how do we make ourselves more efficient at, at creating, creating pictures? Shifting over to ownership, uh, one of the uh, truisms, I guess you'd say, is that if you have a uh, a human, the the if if they've gone to some they've gone to school, they've gotten a whole bunch of training, they've been to museums, um, they apply their own creativity, and that all gets distilled into creating some new work of art or or some new novel or whatever it might be. The the ownership of that, it's okay. That person created it, and they can assign it to someone. Um, if they want to sell that, but but it's it's fairly clear that that that's something that can be copyrighted and that can be owned. But can the output of a machine learning thing who who actually owns that? You know the the are there is the output of an algorithm ownable? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's something that we should discuss. And then the the last sort of component of this that I, I thought was interesting to point out is we spend every day taking inputs from cameras to having artists create models, applying visual effects, and then we output something that's real. I mean, it may be uh, uh, blue people on a foreign planet that doesn't actually exist, but it's it's real thing and something that we've done. Um, that looks almost identical to if someone has taken a video and with some malice applied some changes and and is now making someone say something they didn't say uh and that's sort of an uh-oh thing um and so we want to prevent that um uh, and one of the you know there there are a few things around that that sort of are discussing that and we're, we're discussing that here today um is is this something that can be regulated um are things like uh, a c2pa which is a, a a thing from adobe uh and others um you know are, are these things uh enough to sort of Say, hey, uh, this data is is authentic. Someone someone actually created this, and it's it's the it's what was intended. Um, there are, there are a bunch of problems with that, and and um, in terms of not slowing us down and keeping us nimble, uh, per the earlier comment. Um, and so that's something that you know we as an organization here in New Zealand we are contributing to the professional file formats uh, of the world, uh, and so it'd be really good to to be part of that conversation and 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 help with the problem of encouraging nice behavior as opposed to bad behavior. Um, and then sort of shifting text for a moment, uh, I wanted to remind everyone that, that we are creators, right? We, we, we love creating pictures um, and, and everybody, and, and I only put a few of the job titles up here, um, but everyone loves to create things. Uh, and so um, we don't want to see too much uh, of that taken away, right? And so we are focused on um, tools. Now, when we talk about uh, machine learning and, and these sort of AI things, um, we are using generative 
components in 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 creating new textures for for images and 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 other things. But most of the tools that we're we're building are uh, around making people uh, more precise or more accurate or create a better performance, right? And so we have things across our entire um, production chain now, and I've drawn it sort of in a jumbled fashion here, and that's because production is, is never quite a straight linear process. Um, but we, we do things um, on set with, with real-time depth estimation. That's a machine learning-based things. We do facial performance that you'll see on, on the reel a little bit later. Uh, and um, then then later stuff that I've worked on is denoising. And, and we are also doing using third-party tools to do this as well. Um, and so one, one of the, the things that I want, want to remind everyone, there's always the triangle, faster, cheaper, uh, better, right? And ML is being touted as, as one of all three. Um, it can, maybe it can do all of these. And, and I don't, I don't think that's actually true. Um, and so that's the negative portion of, of the not optimistic, um, is that, you know, we might have things which, which make things faster or, or make things cheaper. Um, but we want to retain the, the quality. And so in, in closing, I want to make sure we, we're talking about creating tools, not replacements for people. Um, we need a, a diverse thing. Language models are just language. Um, some people are better at drawing. Some people are better at other things. And so let's make sure we keep the fun part. That's a great conclusion. Thank you, Kimball. Um, so next up, we have a spine surgeon from Wellington Regional Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Shai Mandler. All right. Morning, everyone. Uh, it's an honor to be here in this conference today. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, to speak about AI in healthcare in six minutes, it's a bit uh, hard. And so I'll try to squeeze everything into... Uh, some of my journey in this uh, area, uh, which ends up with what I'm trying to promote in New Zealand these days. So first, I'm a, I'm a clinician, I'm a surgeon here in the hospital in Wellington, and I'm actually currently coming from a world round after a very, very long weekend. So uh, excuse me for, uh, for that. Uh, I will start with the obvious that, as my colleagues here said, AI is based on digital data. In medicine, it really counts because Every decision influences life of patients and their fahano. So we need the big data uh, in order to get information that allow us to assist health professionals and implement treatment plans and promote healthcare and health programs, and governmental health programs, for example, etc. Overseas hospitals are completely paperless and digital for the last 20 years. These hospitals have developed models of data lakes that receiving and collecting data from various channels, including devices and computers, and especially from the patient itself. But it's not enough. International medical ecosystems also took these data lakes and combined that into data ocean and provided models which allow the healthcare and system and medical industry to be an economical engine of growth in within their countries. There are many AI engines working on this ocean, and lakes, and which consistently analyze the data and allow us to achieve precision in medicine, allow us to, to predict outcomes, uh, research and innovation, of course, efficiency of the system, and most importantly, and I think this you guys will all agree with me, the outcomes for our patients to get better outcomes. 
And I will give you some examples. For example, if you're speaking about precision, uh, we cannot compromise on 90% success rates. So today, AI systems that works in the background, for example, of radiology, can actually detect abnormalities in CTs, MRIs, ultrasound, etc., in less than a fraction of a minute, and can actually alert their busy radiologist or the treating doctor, uh, and even the patient, uh, on that uh, pathology. That's decreasing the responding time for treatment, and sometimes can save lives. For example, if we'll take a stroke, for example, patient that come to the, to the hospital, time equal brain tissue. And missed stroke can be a permanent neurological deficit that can be prevented, can be prevented if we'll shorten the time of response. This AI system can actually short this time of response and now take this patient and put it in Timaru that also need a transfer time to a major hospital. I'll give you another example. If, if we talk, about, um, if we talk about, about burden that this stroke patient will have on the uh, society in Fahano, and just the amount of money and, uh, the, and the amount of money that it will cost the society, it's less than, it's 10 times more than what this AI engine costs. It's important to say that AI in medicine, it's a decision assistant and not a decision making, like in other, other areas because errors can be critical and can cost lives. If we talk about prediction, I can give example from my job. I can analyze and predict the results of my spine surgeries. Moreover, I can even produce a design specific implants that will help me to get better outcomes in my surgeries. I also, those systems also generate further outcome, <clears throat> outcome feedback from the patients and increase my future precision. Before we'll touch on innovation, which is probably what most of you are waiting for me to talk about, uh, I want to talk about the patients. <clears throat> Imagine the health system that takes the healthcare and the wellness to the patient's home, to the most secure place, to the living room. So overseas models of virtual hospitals and clinics that take the hospital from out of the building uh, and collecting data from the patient at their most secure place and most comfortable environment. There are so many cap capabilities, but imagine pr a pregnant patient in a very remote rural country, a very remote rural country or remote area here in New Zealand that can actually self-perform an ultrasound and send it through, and we can actually detect the abnormalities and bring her to the hospital if needed. There are many advantages and there are many features of virtual hospital and virtual healthcare uh, that can be that are AI based and can be uh, useful, but I think that the, these these advantages except as <clears throat> this is disadvantages, especially in a country like ours, where equity, equality, and access are major problems of the of our healthcare systems. So here, this is an area where technology the, the technology offers a great solution. <clears throat> so my journey ends with innovation. Right, thank you. All the data collection is a grant for medical innovation and research. Access to data helps hospitals around the globe to promote house innovation, in-house innovation in within the hospital, and also from external sources like the academia and the industry. The power, of, the power is in the data, and the healthcare system understood that. 
clinically-led hospital-based innovation hubs like this, for example, the, the one that I promote, uh, allows the public system to transform from a government-dependent system to a generating system with, as an economic engine of growth. It ensures expansion of the current healthcare services and hospitals and better care for patients. The future is already here. And instead of reinventing the wheel, we need to look, <clears throat> we need to look overseas and adjust proven successful models. Even our friends across the South are already doing that. We established a year ago a group, a steering group here in New Zealand to promote those uh, models here in New Zealand. And we'll be very, very uh, happy uh, to uh, discuss any further, uh, any further about, data about AI, data lakes, and innovation models with everyone. Uh, again, six minutes is too short to discuss everything. So sorry for that. But thank you for sticking to six minutes anyway. That was great. Thank you. And then last but not least, we have a self-professed AI optimist, Asa Cox, who's the founder and CEO of Arcanum AI, who bought you your coffee, I think. Yes, indeed. Uh, good morning. Um, I am indeed an AI optimist. I'm here to kind of tell you some stories from the future where we no longer do all the drudgery of our day jobs, aka the boring shit. So we, the era of the, the AI assistant is close. We all dream of a time where we can um, come to our desks, our emails are answered apart from the most important. The reports that we write on a daily basis are already drafted. The RFPs that we need to get new business are already submitted. The purchases that we need to make have already been negotiated. All of the things that take up our time our human robot tasks have now been taken away by AI so we can focus our time on being more human, adding value to our organizations, adding value to our teams, having impact on society. Einstein had an IQ of approximately 160. The current world record is a living human based out of China at 225. By 2030, the IQ of the AIs, let's say, is predicted to be 10,000. Imagine having that level of expertise available at your fingertips at a near zero cost that understood every part of your organization, that understood every part of your industry, understood everything from purchasing to sales, from human resources to logistics. Imagine how optimized you could be as an organization, but as the humans, imagine the time that you would have to consider your strategy, your competitive advantage, your people management, how you could have maximum impact on the world because you are no longer doing all of the repetitive, boring tasks. Yes, indeed, there is the elephant in the room about will AI remove all of the jobs? Will it take away all of the things that give us meaning? Hopefully we don't derive meaning from the boring repetitive tasks that we do every day. But I like to use the example of Excel. I imagine everybody in this room has used or uses Excel. It's used to run 
um, countries and large organizations. Um, it was brought to market in the 1970s and all of the accountants feared for their jobs. Those that were using T-accounts on pens and paper and abacuses, they were in fear of their jobs. Now, decades later, there's three times more accountants in the world, for better or for worse, thanks to Excel, a general technology that's been used in so many different ways. Simple calculations, running economies. But the message is that um, the technology itself is not what removes the jobs. It's going to be how we use the technology and how the humans are augmented to be more productive. For those interested in economics, um, look up the Jevons paradox. It's uh, an economist from the UK many, many years ago that was trying to find ways to reduce the demand of coal in the UK. And so they came up with this idea that you should have more efficient steam engines that would require less coal. You can already imagine, actually, that as the cost of steam engines came down, the demand for steam engines went up and the demand for coal went up. Consider the demand for human outputs if we can 10x the productivity of every human for their special role. AI is just a tool. The humans are still needed into the future. And so for us as an organization, we're focused on being able to automate the drudgery, to be able to find and give everybody back more time to be able to have a greater impact on an organization, to be able to do all of the manual data entry, sending of emails, writing of reports across the organization. In the future, you'll all have a mix of humans and digital humans running organizations, negotiating with each other. And they may look something like this. If it plays. Can we play? Otherwise, it's a very boring avatar. This is filling up with frequently asked questions and queries. Hi, I'm Marcus, and I help customer support teams manage their inboxes by responding to all those commonly asked questions, giving them more time to focus on the more unique and complex problems. I train on your support documents, connect directly into an inbox, and answer questions as they come in using a friendly and helpful tone. Helping others to solve problems is really important to me, and I pride myself on providing the best answers I can, but if I'm not sure, I will pass it on to another team member. So again, you can see this, the AI is not quite right. There's something a little bit weird about him, but this took approximately 30 seconds to produce. So again, you have experts at Weta doing incredible things with big movies. And then we have the ability to do these things at a small scale, at much lower quality, but a lot faster and a lot cheaper. The technologies that will um, provide the productivity, that will provide the opportunity are here, and we've got to figure out how to use them. And what we're hoping for being a part of events like this is to have a balanced conversation. We've heard about the incredible impact that AI can have across healthcare and across society more broadly. But we need to balance the, the risks associated with that with the opportunity risk of not doing it. Yes, there will be disruption on business models and jobs. There will be challenges around IP ownership and data privacy. There are issues with the way AI has with the, its hallucination challenges and the cost of running it. But as organizations, we need to think about how do we build a sustainable company? How do we build a sustainable country and an economy? 
How do we improve productivity? How do we provide an exciting future for our children? And so I am the optimist. I am uh, definitely um, here to talk about the, the ideas and opportunities that you may see in front of you. But if you want to experience it for yourself, email my assistant. Thank you. Well, thanks to all the panelists for some stimulating little um, vignettes into what the future might look like. We have some time for questions. Has anyone got a burning question? I might kick off by um, just reflecting that many of you made a point about needing to enable existing tools and using AI to make things go faster that were already in existence, which begs the question in terms of the talent pipeline, who do we need? We're going to need people to do all these things, but do we need coders? Do we need generalists? Is it a mindset we're after? What do you think we need to help New Zealand benefit from these amazing opportunities? Um, one thing that I would say we would need is is more critical thinkers, right? You know, just the, the, that general idea of how do you divide problems in half and how do you farm some out this way and some out that way and, and combine all of these systems into a larger larger piece. I think we are going to have a, a, a intergenerational challenge when it comes to organizational design or what the future employment is going to look like. There's going to be people in this room Oh, the Layla, the baby's out there, she's like three months old, but her future is going to look a lot different to what my present looks like and what you know, grandkids are going to look like. And I think we, we have got to think far enough into the future to understand what, what skills are going to be required, but critical thinking is likely to be number one. Totally agree. Here's all the from from my answer, we're working with startups and what we need are entrepreneurs, people who are not afraid to take risks. And as uh, as life becomes more uh, complicated and potentially easier, it's harder for people to see the value of taking the risk. But that that's who we need. Thank you. Should, should we, anyone know what the problem is with the feedback? Is it the two mics or...? Yeah, I was going to say that. Is she coming back on the screen? Can we get Priya back? On stage, it was. Meanwhile, does anyone have any other questions while we try and solve the feedback? One at the back. Thank you. Okay. So, testing. Microphone. This is commands. Testing, one, two, three. You might have to shout. I'll show because we fixed the line to uh, So I guess my question is, uh, like I see you mentioned that we might be putting people out of jobs. Does that take itself pass? So that is sort of the, the wider issue possible. AI is supposed to get the better with the nice art of both people versus it's here to imagine the youth is totally in the world. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Igor. Um, I think we've got a um, an opportunity, and it's been it's been played out in AR right now. Where actually, what's driving the technology forward is open source, which is fantastic. It's not just Microsoft um, and others in the big tech community. There is an incredible amount of progress being made in open source, and that's the kind of opportunities that we can lean on 
and the technologies that we can benefit from in, in New Zealand and elsewhere as individual organizations, as governments, as society more broadly, is we need to agree that wealth needs to be distributed in a way which will benefit society overall. And that means a balance between the commercial progress that we see with the investments that big tech can make, but also we have this open source community which can you know, be of benefit more broadly. Um, I, I think as humanity, we have um, tended um, to make some very wealthy people and they have had a huge amount of impact on society. Uh, but we also need to make sure that we're not beholden to those same people. And, and so that becomes a part of the societal discussion that, you know, hopefully will happen over our AI fusion lunch. Priya, welcome back. I'm just checking you can hear us. I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. So just give us a wave if you'd like to answer. You, you're looming over the rest Sounds of the panel. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, I couldn't hear the most recent question, but on the question before about the types of um, kind of, you know, people and talent that we need. Um, I think I totally agree with the other panelists. And I think in addition, I think the role of um, translators is extremely underrated in the sense that AI is, you know, not, uh, I think, increasingly being employed in um, for a limited set of image and, you know, text applications. It's really being deployed across many sectors in society and having people who can really understand the language of the sector in which the deployment is 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 scoped and AI itself and who can really help translate between those two communities to make sure they're speaking the same language and are able to effectively understand what is possible and desirable and, and not together. I think that role of translators is going to be really, really critical. Thank you. Any more questions at the front? So on this last slide in hand, the legislation, nothing but this policy. We can have that of anyone who belongs that lead. I'll just repeat the question so that Priya gets it. So it was a question about hallucinations and um, why Asa thought they were a good thing. Okay, so before that, let me address the Microsoft thing. Um, we had the... <laughs> Despite the odds, we are the leading provider of open source large language models in the whole world. It's open source. We don't we don't close guard it because we have the ethics in place. And we would like to welcoming any other body of organization to opinionate it because we want to do this hand by hand. But addressing the hallucination. So hallucination is a process where when you are training a data language model, um, it's like you're trying to explain reasoning for your drunk cousin. Can you do that? It's bloody hard, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's, that's, that's what we call the hallucination. So when you're expecting certain answers, certain behavior, and in the model outputs in a different manner. Same happens when you're trying to train a model and you're trying to eliminate as much as you can bias. Because remember, we're all humans, we have bias, we have judgment, and we teach the computer to do the same way. How can we protect ourselves to that? So hallucinations is one problem, bias is another problem. And that's, that's, that's it. Hopefully I can answer your question. Cool. Anyone else want to chip in on hallucinations? <laughs> no, no. I'd, I'll chip in on that one. I mean, if you want to see what one is, just go on to OpenAI and ask it some questions and Me keep asking it the same question. Yeah. Yeah, medically, probably, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> question over here. Thank you. 
um, great positive stories there and negative stories there. There is obviously a conversation. Thank you very much. There is obviously a conversation around AI outsmarting humans. I'm interested on your take on that, whether that's real, really potential or scaremongering. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of smart people in this room, better than I am, right? better than I am. Kimbo, for example, it's amazing. Um, I've heard great stories about your capabilities. Um, and here we are, right? We are living together. Um, AI for itself, I'm an optimist. The problem is, let's let put it a very big disclosure here. I'm an opti optimistic with an analytical mind. Um, the problem with AI that people think that is a scaremongering or probably it's going to take overtake the world. Folks are watching a lot of Skynet. Um, when we are dealing with the AI or training a model to behave with demonstrate certain traits of a human, um, we are narrowing down a very specific topic that if you put that model to perform other tasks, it can't behave the way you want, right? We have a challenge in our industry, and I call it three triplicity uh, challenges. We call these processing power, we call data argumentation, and we also call talent. We have a shorted all of the three. Just to give you a sense, to train a model, um, you have to have at least $25,000 to buy one GPU. It's bloody expensive, right? Very expensive. So the goal with Microsoft, the GitHub, and in the community, because I'm part of the natural language processing community, is to narrow down that you can train models in your own computer, let alone in your own device. And, and that's the challenge. Um, we narrow down to a specific task, and AI can outperform any human. For example, when, like the doctor said, um, if we narrow down the models to assist a doctor to prevent or, you know, for example, self-validation on certain, certain diagnosis, AI is a better companion, but it's not a leading one. The same way we did with Copilot, the developer is still the lead developer. The co-pilot, by the name suggestion, I think you guys figured that out, it's an assistant of the developer. So we assist developers to be the 10 times the engineer that we need in the room. Oh, I, I want to crack in for a second. Um, on, for example, when it comes to AI in medicine, and he, as he's spoken, as I mentioned, medical decisions have been taken uh, according to evidence-based medicine. So it's, we are collecting as much data as we can, and we base all our decision on data. Uh, AI allows us to get to uh, precision and into uh, analytics that we uh, it will take us ages to, to get to, uh, especially if we, uh, if we are tracking data from the uh, data oceans or the, uh, the big data around the world. And that's actually allow us to get to a better prediction and, 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 and precision. But eventually, there is no substitute for the human uh, decision. And this is because uh, someone needs to be accountable and responsible for the patient. So the system cannot be accountable and responsible for the patient. And if there will be any error or any, uh, any decision-making error, 
that the system that a system a computerized system will do that won't be backed up by any by anyone so this is why eventually it's a, just a decision assisted and it does help us to 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 detect a lot of things today i i just heard this morning about um one of my friends that doing uh, lap, uh colonoscopies and they just turning the ai button on and it can they can detect some stuff during the the examination so so the we have that capability today it helps us and it helps us to get a better outcomes question over there we've just got time for a couple more i think hello i'm matthew omar can you hear me now matthew omar the director of the latin america center of asia pacific excellence one of the sponsors so my question is primarily but not exclusively for igor when we think of ai and how society receives um the, the possibilities and is either open or closed. Are there parts of the world, like Brazil, where you come from, where there are examples that we don't normally think of? In other words, do we have to restrict ourselves to our culture's perceptions or what's going on in the United States and the tech world there? Are there examples from Brazil or India or other part, countries that we can learn from both what happened and how society responded? Actually, there's a actually there's a it's a great question. It's a great question. I don't know if I can answer that with attitude, but I will do my best. Okay. Um, so let me tell you a little story about myself. Putting myself in this context, when I grow up, I didn't have access to a computer. Um, I had to buy my own first computer, and then I work in a free market, carrying stuff for you know, rich people. So I got my first computer, and my first book was completely, totally in English. English is not my mother tongue. So it was C++. So I was very keen to learn how to program. But at the same time, um, um, I didn't know how to read in English. So English, programming, it's, I don't know if you know this, but it's an English programming facility. It's like, you know, it's a system way of writing plain English. For people that doesn't know English, it's quite hard to program. And probably this influenced a little bit of how Copilot behaves today. Um, we are very soon we're going to enable all kids across the globe to use Copilot in their own native language. Um, and then the reason behind this is because we wanted to enable kids to bring prosperity to their family, like I brought to my family, right? My mom is a single mom, she's a mathematician, and we grow up without a dad. Um, so I wanted that experience to enhance the capability of that family little by little. So the same technology that I do have access, you all have access. Kids in Latin America, kids in India, kids in slums of India or in slums of Brazil, they can have access as well. They can improve their lives through programming and co-pilots there to assist them. And I'm a strong believer that that will happen pretty soon. We've got a question on the stage, I think, and then one down here, and then that might be it. Can we get a microphone down here? The, the, the benefit of sitting on the stage, you can ask you have a, you can ask a question. So, Shai, I want to challenge you. You said the human will always be needed. And so let's say, uh, uh, you know, a doctor would, you know, misses on average 100 things per year. And by enabling the machine to make the decisions, it will only miss 30 per year, but it will be the machine. So no human accountability. Will that um, on average, it's better. It's better for the patient. But would that work? Interesting question. Um, 
I, th I don't think it will work. I think it's it's eventually it's coming to combine those together, and this is what we want to uh, achieve by using AI in healthcare. So we want to uh, take the best from what the AI engines give us and what the data can offer us, and and for that we need to pro to produce as much data as we can to be much more precise in what we do. But eventually, you want a critical human eye on what you're doing because eventually you cannot the, the system cannot replace the patient uh the physician patient relationship it cannot affect it cannot change the human uh touch that you are you 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 touching a patient uh and eventually uh there is a there are a lot of physical uh examination data that we we achieve that the system cannot achieve so i think it's a combination of both will will get the error rates much more down than what it's now. And I think this is what we're using AI for. Thanks. Priya, was, was that a way? Yeah, jump in. Yes, yeah. So I think it's also important to partition between what is technically possible versus what is uh, d desirable in the sense that if we had literally infinite data, with literally infinite data that a machine learning algorithm could learn from, in theory, that machine learning algorithm could pick up every single pattern that might exist in, in any data it might see because it has infinite data. It can figure out how to detect those patterns. But in reality, we don't have this, right? The number of examples that we're able to feed to a machine learning algorithm will always be limited. And it may not be desirable to necessarily set up large-scale data collection systems in every single circumstance to improve that. If instead there's that very viable solution of let's see what the machine learning algorithm says with its amount of data that it has. Let's see what the human says with its different set of, you know, different set of reasoning and different ability to to judge and combine those together. And we see that in a lot of areas, for example, um, machine learning for optimizing power grids. You can't get infinite data about how your power grid works. What you can do is write down the physics of how your power grid works and use the data you have from sensors and combine those together to optimize your power and better get some kind of insight. So again, I would partition between what is technically possible, right? Would it, would it ever be the case that a machine learning algorithm could perform perfectly in these settings? Yes, maybe given infinite data, but infinite data might not be a you know practical or desirable thing to actually aim for, for a variety of reasons. Thank you. We're, we're nearly at time, but I think we can just sneak in one last question. Was the one around here somewhere? I've gained. It's on. Okay. I've been in the, in this, in the computer industry almost all my life. I have basically experienced in person, actually, all of the development since the early 60s. And I have seen again and again the euphoria of new tele technology as an introduction into human beings and to save time and all sorts of other things. I'm not really that much of an optimist any longer because I've seen it that only those things who are have the possibility to make money are actually f promoted and everything else gets fallen down the track. So how can we actually solve that problem that we have a balanced approach to AI, yeah, 
We never had that before, so it would be nice to have it once for a while. Thanks. So why will it be different this time? Very quick answers from the panel. Super quick for me. Some, something that we see in now, the, this generation of entrepreneurs, a lot of them come from the impact side and not just to make money. So hopefully a new generation of entrepreneurs can help do that. I, I think for me, it's groups like this. I think for the first time, it's moved beyond commerce and academia into every walk of life and society. We need to foster more of these conversations to make sure that we're using AI to benefit everybody, not just the bank balances of a few. For me, it's uh, to take to take what I'm doing for the, to the next level so we can actually achieve better well-being. Today, we're not, we're not talking about illness. We're talking about wellness because of AI. So it's, um, it's something that take human life and, and, and medical care and healthcare to a different, different place. Oh, um, we'll, we'll just let oh, Priya and, and Kimball just say a, a very quick wrap up. Over to you, Priya. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I guess I'd say I share in some ways the sentiment of the panelist and some or of the questioner in some sense, hoping that it'll happen um, is not sufficient. Um, but I think what we can do is we have a very opportune policy window right now, as a lot of governments, kind of national, local, and, and the EU are really shaping AI strategies and AI regulations to shape the development of this innovation. And I think that we can do a lot to um, shape what goes in those strategies, how AI is developed, um, where money goes as a result. And it's not easy, but I think that that is a window that we have available to us right now. Thank you. Last word, Kimball. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I also share some of those concerns, but the, 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 the fact that we're not we're talking about bias and we're talking about inclusion and not talking about economics, I think, is encouraging, right? And so, I think I think we we, we all share that that hope and that desire. Well, thank you very much, and let's just thank once again all the panel.